seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, the church said, now hold up. We're old Navy models, y'all. Beautiful. Good morning, everybody. Y'all doing all right today? Before I get going in this sermon, I want to acknowledge a dear friend of mine, Pastor Stacy Spencer's here. Uh, Stacy's also a board member at Agape. He is uh, he planted the New Directions Christian Church here in Hickory Hill, a 10,000-member church. It's doing so much good in our city. Stacy, after 15 years of grinding in your church, was given this whole summer as a sabbatical. So this is his last Sunday before he is back preaching next week, and I hope this has been a good summer for you. Uh, man, you have been a dear friend to me. I, I, I sit at your feet. I learn from you. I thank you for your ministry, and I want you to know how much you and New Directions, what, what you mean to the city and beyond. God has given you a global ministry, and the fact that you would be here today means a lot to us. So can we welcome Stacy and his two sons who are here today? <clears throat> I um, also just want to make you aware, September 7th, it's a Wednesday night. Casey and I uh, we've done this a couple of times over the last couple of years where we do some kind of class together and we're going to do an 11-week class this fall on Wednesday nights and we're just calling it uh, Josh and Casey Unplugged 20 Years of Reflection on Discipleship and uh, both of us are celebrating about 20 years of uh, following Jesus and we still, as I still remain a very seasoned sinner through those 20 years but we want to we just go back and forth talking about faith and suffering and struggles and conflict and prayer and uh, every week just have different topics that we work through together of how God has helped us to progress in some areas and grow in some areas so uh, I hope you may invite some friends and will be blessed by that. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're in a study of the Beatitudes and uh, we're calling this series Altered. So for eight weeks we're in the third week today of an eight-week series that we're going through one of the most important teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and week one, I, I started out just laid a foundation, and then uh, the very first beatitude Jesus gives is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, or blessed are those who are crushed in spirit, or, or another way to put it is, blessed are those who are at the end of their rope, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And, and then Jesus goes to, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And, and this is where, like I preached that sermon last week, and then... Uh, Stacy, something we do here every six weeks or so is at the end of a sermon, we have a few tables in here, and I'll give people a question. They'll go to tables and they'll write out prayer requests. It gives people a space for confession, testimony. They, some people write names, some don't. And, and our staff took time to pray over ways that you were mourning in your own life. 
I was surprised last week, uh, and, and this isn't a bad thing, but I expected to have more people who would reflect on death. Not one person went to a table to reflect on death. It was, it was mourning uh, mostly over uh, things in relationships and, and, and forms of brokenness in your life, but I've been carrying these in my back pocket to be able to pray for them. And then there are times where I wonder, like, did God... Did God choose Beatitudes because God was aware that things are going to be happening in the life of this church? Because I preached this sermon last week. Blessed are those who mourn. And none of us had a clue that the Brocks would suffer the kind of loss they would suffer over the last few days. Where our dear friend Tamari, 21 years old, would wake up Thursday morning perfectly fine. And really all we know is at some point in that day at a construction site, he suffered from some heat stroke. And when he hit the ground, suffered from head trauma, and a combination of that sent him to the hospital with a high fever and that he passed away yesterday morning. And I'm just in a state of shock, which I'm sure many of you are. I've held my kids a little tighter the last couple of days. And there are times where I hear the words of Jesus, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And I feel God sometimes saying to me, okay, can that be enough for you? Just that there's going to be mourning in life and you receive comfort from God. And I think there are days where it is enough. But there are a lot of days where in my prayer time, and call me selfish if you want, there are a lot of days where in my prayer time I'm like, God, it's not enough. I want you to fix stuff. I want you to reverse the wrongs. I want you to make things right. I want you to heal. Because we read in Scripture, all it takes is a word from the mouth of God and healing comes. God spoke a word and created the world and He speaks words and can still create and recreate. And sometimes it's just not enough. And I'm learning, especially the last few days, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And we press into that this morning. And then Jesus gets to another beatitude that I want to talk about this morning where He says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And this is a hard one because I, I bet if we took a poll in this room of how many of you used the word meek in a conversation this past week, very few people would raise their hands. And you probably have some definition of meek to work off of it, that it's being humble and it's, it's uh, caring for others more than you care for yourself. But let me go about it like this. If I were to ask for a show of hands this morning of, of blessed are those who are poor in spirit or you feel like you are in a season where you are at the end of your rope, can I just see a show of hands of how many of you would fit that? And some hands come up. And if I were to ask how many of you fit within that beatitude of blessed are those who mourn this morning for they will be comforted, can I just see a show of hands? How many of you would say that's you? Okay, and now if I were to say how many of you think you were meek will raise their hand? And we don't get many because some of you are reflecting right now and you're like, well, I think I may be meek, but if I raise my hand to say I'm meek, does that mean I'm not meek? If I admit to being meek, maybe I'm really not. It's like that kid who won the award in his school for being the most humble kid in his class, but he wore the button on his shirt, so he got it taken away from him, all right? Because you weren't supposed to acknowledge these things. And I know a lot of times, like we'll say, yeah, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and I, I agree with a lot of that. But in that place in the book of Numbers where uh, it says Moses was the most humble person to walk the face of the planet, I don't know if Moses wrote that in there, all right? What does it mean to be meek? So let me give you a biblical definition this morning of meek, and I want to build on this. Here are a few definitions, and they're all on the screen, so feel free to take a picture of this. Write these down in your notes uh, on the side of your Bible. Here are some biblical definitions of meek and meekness that I want to build on today, because sometimes when we think meek, we think weak. Meekness is not weakness. Meek does not mean you become a doormat and other people walk on you. 
when it comes to meek, here are a few definitions. And the word meek only shows up three times in the Bible, so this isn't even a word that you see a lot throughout Scripture. But it refers to God's strength under His control. Or maybe another definition to work off of is demonstrating power without undue harshness. And sometimes the English translation of meek misses this third one because meek is this beautiful blend of gentleness and strength. Meek does not mean weak. Meek meek means that you are strong in understanding where your strength comes from. Uh, That you find your strength in God. It means you live a life in which you are under control because you know who is in control. Now, the first word of every one of these Beatitudes, and I'm going to remind you of this every single week, is the word blessed. It's the first thing God does in Genesis 1 when he creates human beings is he blessed them before he did anything else. And the first big teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is he starts out every one of these with blessed. And as I've been preparing for this sermon series for months now, I'm asking God to take people in this room who have never had blessings spoken over you or you've never felt like you've received the blessing for God, that in one of these eight weeks, God's going to open up your heart and drop in you this blessing from the Lord that will touch your life and will be a reminder that you can live from for the rest of your life. Because something I've reminded you of, and I think this is so important because I struggle with this, and I bet many of you are raised in a culture, in a church culture, where you struggle with this too, is if we're not careful, we begin to live for the blessing of God and not from the blessing of God. As if we can do enough to earn the favor of God or we do enough to where God wants to bless us, but we don't live for it, we live from it. God speaks it, and then there is this new identity in us, and we live from that blessing. Jesus began speaking blessing over people who, who had been chronically ill. He began speaking blessing over people who had been paralyzed, and now they were healed. He's speaking blessing over people who had been having seizures, and now they weren't. He's speaking blessing over those who weren't allowed in synagogues because they had been unclean. Speaking blessing over those who had been separated in relationships because they were unclean, and now they're not anymore. And now this crowd of people, and Jesus is looking into the faces of people with names and experiences and a past, and people who have been told they were never good enough, and now Jesus is speaking blessing over all of them. Philip Yancey says a better way to think about this, because we throw around blessing way too easy in our culture today. Like, hey, have a blessed day. Philip Yancey says maybe what Jesus is saying is something like, man, lucky are the unlucky. Like, blessed are you. Because Jesus isn't just looking in the face of a lot of people who saw themselves as victims. He's not just looking at them saying, let me just speak a word that can make your day better. And it's not Jesus looking into the faces of people and saying, "Uh, you poor thing. Let me just try to cheer you up just a little bit today. Blessed are those who are at the end of their rope. And blessed are you who cry a lot. And Jesus is speaking present-day blessing that also has a future and eternal reward. Because there were kings in those days who would often hand out coins. They would be in some triumphal procession. And all the, the, the townspeople would be around. And kings would just throw coins out. And people would scatter and get them and think, oh, our king's so merciful. And the next day, the king would raise taxes. And the king would do other things to take that money and to take people's legs out from right underneath them. But Jesus came setting up a different kind of economy. Well, for Jesus, what he was doing is offering present-day blessings that people could live into in the here and now and also giving them future rewards to live for. Now, uh, and I shared this a couple of weeks ago, Casey and I 
as we've been reflecting on the Beatitudes together. We had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, and she said, Josh, isn't it true that when you started reading the Beatitudes years ago, that you wanted the reward more than you wanted the first part of each Beatitude? And I was like, yeah, that's exactly how I used to read them. Yes, I wanted to inherit the earth. Or, or even, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. Now, I wanted to be filled, so let me act like I'm hungry and thirsty for righteousness, and then maybe God will fill me up. And if we're not careful in our lives, what we do is we live for the benefits of God more than we live for God. And we want the benefits and the blessings that come from knowing God more than we want the heart of God. And what the Beatitudes do is they open us up to the heart of God where his heart becomes our heart. His heart enters into our heart. Now, if you read the Beatitudes, it sounds so strange because what should you do with them? And some of you are in the process right now, and the Hardys responded to a Facebook post I had the other day of how people in the church are attempting to memorize the Beatitudes. And some of you began answering with, on that Facebook post of things you're doing in your own life, and your own family. And to memorize them is one thing, to live into the depth of what they are is another. And we're trying to live into the depth of what they are, but it's hard because we live in celebrity culture where what we often honor in society are the strong and the popular and the wealthy and the powerful. And Jesus comes flipping all this on its head. Where Jesus comes teaching in a way where it's an upside-down, inside-out kind of kingdom, and those you thought were on top aren't going to be on top forever. And those on the bottom are going to be lifted up as Jesus empowers them. In a way, what the word meek means is that we become small, knowing who we are in the presence of God. And what you have to ask, especially for the crowd there with Jesus, was is meek a position in life that they chose or is meek a position that chose them? Because meek is not the absence of passion and conviction, but that we don't have these hair triggers. And I think this is so important. What meek does to live into the fullness of meekness is it forces us to slow down. Because when we slow down remembering we are small, God is great. We're small, but God's power that he has enters into our smallness so that we can be this expression of what God wants us to be in the world. As we become small, what we learn is we learn to slow down to where we are slow to write off others. We're slow to condemn. We're slow to judge. We're slow to become angry. What it means is I'm not going to be low-tempered, meaning that there's nothing that will ever set me off. And what meek also means is, not, is that I'm not high-tempered, where something can easily set me off. What meek means is I, I'm going to live a life where I'm under control, under God's control. Because there will be something that happens in your life today that has the potential to set you off. It could be stepping on a Lego in a hallway. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> It could be driving on I-40 and you leave church and you're so on fire for God and somebody's just going to cut you off. It's happened to me a, a few times um, over the last couple of years where I jump up on Sam Cooper or I-40 or the loop and somebody does something crazy because I'm driving sane, all right? Uh, but there are times where I get in my car and I'm like, God, help me to be a man of God today because often the way people treat me when I drive transforms how I treat other people over the next hour of my life. Help me to be a man of God, and somebody will cut me off, or I do something, and they, have you ever been told you're number one when somebody drives by you, you know what I'm saying? And for a while, I, I thought, I'm going to respond with joy and happiness, so people will flick me off, and I smile big and wave, or give them a big thumbs up, 
or start doing the Steph Curry, you know. Or and don't try this, all right, because it usually doesn't make other people happier, all right? <clears throat> I want you to see, even though the word meek does not show up in the book of Acts, I believe this was a character trait that allowed the church to be who the church needed to be in the book of Acts. As they suffer persecution. As uh, they're so committed to the gospel spreading, yet there were all these obstacles in the way. It was meekness that kept them centered and focused. All right, so... Here's what I want to do the last half of this sermon. Uh, is I want to walk you through a biblical example of meekness, an historical example of meekness, and then give you a present-day uh, way to think about this. All right? So if you're taking notes, I want you to write down which each one of these chairs is going to stand for. Uh, how many of you uh, like roller coasters? Just a show of hands. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> this is great. All right. So, um, so many times life can feel like roller coasters. Uh, I've told this story, it was probably six or seven years ago, but I, was, uh, I grew up going to Six Flags a lot because I was raised in Dallas. And once you pay a lot of money to get in the Six Flags, there's one ride at Six Flags that you have to pay additional money to do, and it's called the Dive Bomber. So they take you up about 250 feet in the air, you pull a cord, you have about a 150-foot free fall, and then you swing on this bungee cord back and forth until you slow down and you get off. How many of you have done it or would do that? Can I see a show of hands? How many of you, no one could pay you enough money to do something like that? And all of a sudden, we got charismatic in this church, right? <laughs> right. So I pay money with two other friends, or three of us, and we're going to do this. So it was me, my, uh, one of our uh, friends who was a girl was in the, uh, to my left, and then one of our good friends was on the right. And they put us parallel, and they start lifting us in the air, and we weren't 15 feet in the air which means we still had about 230 feet to go. We were barely up in the air where this girl next to me began crying hysterically. The kind of crying that you needed a Kleenex because snot was coming out. She's bouncing and I, shoulders are bouncing. And, she, and, and the only way you get off the dive bomber is you have to do it. Like they don't let you down because you get scared. So I looked at her and I said, what do you want me to do? Like I can, do you want me to pray a prayer as we go up? I can sing a song. Do you want me to tell some jokes? And she, it, through, through her weeping, she said, can you sing me a song? Which, if you've ever been in a moment, a song comes to you that, that fits that moment. And the first song that came to me was a song we sung in the youth group back in the 1990s. was, Lord, be there for me when I fall. <laughs> be there for me when I fall. <clears throat> Which, she wasn't having any of that, right? She, like, elbowed me in the ribs. And then she said, sing me another one. I was like, oh, great, I get another chance. And the next one that came to me wasn't any better. It was the old hymn, uh, some glad morning. And when this life is o'er, I'll fly away, fly away. <clears throat> and we got to the very top, pulled the cord, had this free fall. She's screaming as a girl. I'm screaming like a girl, but blaming it on her, all right? <laughs> and, and we get off, and guess who had the most fun on that ride? This is the girl. She's telling everybody else, you've got to do this. It's the best thing ever. All right. Some of you would explain your life right now like a roller coaster. Where one day you feel like you're up and one day you're down. And some of you feel like you're upside down. Let me begin with the life of David real quick. All right. Here are four things that I want each one of these chairs to represent. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Uh, uh, write down the word anointing or conversion. 
Because what happens in David's life in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is he receives this anointing from Samuel. Now, Samuel had, I don't think Samuel had a clue who David's family was. Maybe he knew Jesse. But if you remember when Samuel shows up at the house, he doesn't know which brother he's supposed to choose. And Samuel keeps asking, like, you got any others? Any other sons? And they get down to the very last one, and it's David, this shepherd boy who's out in the field, right, taking care of of sheep, and Samuel calls him in, and Samuel pronounces anointing over him. He anoints him, tells him he will be king one day, but does not give him a date and time that it's going to happen. It's going to be years. I bet there are people in here who at times in your life you have gotten tired waiting on God. Because we live in a world where we want to pray and we want it to be like fast food restaurants, right? We pray, God serves it up. We take a car in for an oil change and hope it's done within 30 minutes or an hour. We pray, and we want something served up immediately. David receives this anointing, but doesn't know when it's going to come to fruition. You read 1 Samuel chapter 18 through 21, and it's all about crisis and conflict. Uh, So write down the word crisis and conflict to represent chair number two. Because often in any of our lives, what comes after conversion and anointing is some form of crisis and conflict. And for David, it came in the form of the king that he's going to be replacing throws a spear at him. And David goes back to play a harp in the presence of the king after Saul threw one spear at him. Saul would end up trying to take David's life multiple times, throwing three different spears. You know how many times someone has to throw a spear at me before they will never get a chance to throw a second spear? Right? Like one time you throw it at me, I'm finding a new job. I'm going to a new land. David remained committed to what he felt was the calling of God upon him. Saul promises, hey, David, you go do this for me. I'll give you my wife. David does it. He's not given a wife. Uh, David's relationship with Jonathan, Jonathan's relationship with his dad, Saul, uh, is, is so confused because Saul's now taking his hatred out on David. He's taking his hatred for David out on Jonathan. And David reaches a point in his life where he feels so broken that if you look in chapter 18 through 21, it's this story after story of conflict and crisis to the point where David's wife that he had then was even pretending that there was a statue in a bed so she could fool and trick her own dad not to take David's life. So David went from conversion to anointing to crisis and conflict. And I want to skip chair number three real quick and come to chair number four. Because in chair number four, there are choices that you still have to make in life. What are you going to do when crisis and conflict hits? Because at the end of chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, you read of David who, who he had enough. So we went to a foreign town called Gath to escape everything. And what David started to do is he pretended to be somebody he wasn't. David starts foaming at the mouth and pretending to be somebody who was out of his mind. He, pretend, he, he started to pretend to be somebody he was not. Because when conflict and crisis hits in our life, if we do not have a foundation to stand on, sooner or later we're going to become people we never wanted to be. Now, David went on in his life and began to pursue God more. I had a conversation with Lynn Anderson uh, this past week, and I was, we were just processing the Psalms together. And Lynn said, Josh, here's something you need to learn about David. The older he got, the greater his sins became. Yet the more sensitive his heart was to God. Isn't it wild how it works that way sometimes? David doesn't commit 
murder and uh, adultery until 2 Samuel chapter 11. His sins became greater, but his heart became more and more sensitive to who God was. But there's this one moment, and I want this to be to represent chair number three, where in the midst of all that conflict and crisis between 1 Samuel 18 and 1 Samuel 21, there's this little verse that found me back in June. In 1 Samuel 19, verse 18, this one little verse, I've read it so many times, never noticed it. What it says is, David went to Samuel and told him everything Saul had done. And that's all we know about the conversation, but I wish I knew what, what else happened in that conversation. So, so I want you to write this down. I want you to write down the word reminder. This is the first interaction David has with Samuel since his conversion and his anointing back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And things had gotten so bad in the life of David that David went to the person who was there in his anointing, his conversion, when blessing was spoken over him. And I wonder at any moment if David said, Samuel, did you get it wrong? Did you you miss who you were supposed to anoint because it doesn't seem to be happening in my life? Did you have a dream and you thought you were acting obediently with that dream, but it's really wrong? Like, did you anoint the right person? Is all this working out the way God told you it was going to work out? Sometimes what we need in life, especially during crisis and conflict, is we've got to go back to the place, the person, the event of the anointing to be reminded of the story that we've been called into. Because if we don't have that foundation that we can be reminded of when the choice comes of who are we going to be, what are we going to choose? All right, so now, historically, I want you to go to AD 70, 40 years after Jesus died, rose from the grave, and ascended into the heavens. And I want you just to imagine for a moment, what was it like for now second and possibly third generation Christians who were making decisions to follow Jesus? So Matthew writes around 70 AD. And here's what I think is really important for you to know. Around 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Nero had been killing people. And and here are these people who are giving their lives over to Jesus, confessing Jesus as Lord. They're being baptized in the Christ. People are converted. The church is growing. So there's this anointing and this conversion. But these people opened up their eyes. Anytime they went outside, anytime they left, the gathering of the believers and conflict and crisis was all around them. Nero was taking Christians and tying them on ropes and setting them on fire to light up Rome. Uh, You would probably be hard-pressed to find any Christian around 70 AD who didn't have a relative or a close friend who hadn't been killed by someone because of their faith. So for you to choose to follow Jesus meant crisis and conflict was going to come in your life. And and that's just the persecution that was coming from the outside. They were also, I'm sure, that dealing with hurting marriages and families because if one person becomes a Christian, yet the rest of the family was still in Judaism and didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God, the conflict this could cause around Thanksgiving and Christmas and other holidays was tremendous, right? So there's conflict and there's crisis. And what you have with the church over in chair number four is what are they going to do? Because the whole reason the book of Hebrews was written was because Christians had given their lives over to Jesus, but now they're backsliding. And they're choosing not to take the faith seriously because of all the turmoil that's coming in their life because of it. So when conflict and crisis hits, we have choices to make. Are we going to continue to choose life and pursuing Jesus and surrendering to Him? Or are we going to choose some other life that leads to apathy, complacency, or something else? But in chair number three for these Christians in AD 70 is that they would continue to come together and be reminded of their story. 
what are the things we know are true? And I can only imagine that there would be families and maybe those little churches that would meet in houses or in caves or under trees, that they would get together and they would reflect back on the Beatitudes that we have in Matthew chapter 5 and recite them to their kids and share them with each other. Hey, as you guys go out throughout this week, we need to be reminded, blessed are those who are crushed in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. So let me move to present day where we are today. Because I think many of you, if not most of you, have some kind of conversion story, some kind of anointing that has come in your life. You probably remember the time in your life that you surrendered your life to Jesus. That you were baptized into Christ, you confessed with your mouth. You may not remember the date, the exact day it happened, but I bet you remember the month. On the count of three, tell me the month when you remember trusting your life over to Jesus. One, two, three. And if you don't have a story of trusting your life to Jesus, as a leadership in a church, we would love to talk to you about that today. I hope you're getting a piece of how good Jesus is in this sermon. But as most of us know, and as some of us are experiencing right now in our lives, there's conflict and crisis all around us. In your families, because of death. Crisis and conflict because of racial, racial tension, because of violence in our city, because of turmoil throughout our country and throughout our world. Evil is prevalent. Evil is spreading. There's crisis and conflict. So what are we, what kind of people are we going to choose to be? Because whoever's elected in November, I just need you to know the kingdom of God will continue to spread no matter what after that. And that kind of, we wake up every day making choices of who am I going to be and how am I going to pursue God? And let's not let the forces of evil cause us not to want to chase God with reckless abandonment. But what are those reminders in our lives today? What's the place of your anointing, of your conversion, of the blessing you need to go back to in your life? I've told this story a couple of times. When my sister died, it's been six and a half years. Hard to believe it's been that long. Uh, My parents had basically lived in that hospital for 18 days. And when Jenny breathed their last breath, my parents were walking out of the hospital and they stopped before they went into the parking lot. My parents are some of the godliest people I know, but they knew that there there would probably never be a normal again. They knew that the world they were entering into was not the same world that they had been in when they came into the hospital 18 days before. And my mom stopped my dad and said, before we even go out there, Rick, what do we believe? Like, what is the story we're banking our lives on? And my dad said four words came out of him, the only four words he could think of. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. The same power that was able to lift Jesus out of a grave is the same power that will lift Jenny and Tamaria. And the list goes on. It's the same power that can lift you out of whatever you find yourselves in now. What meat calls us to is to surrender to God, to realize how desperate we are in need of God. Can I have uh, our prayer leaders and shepherds, if you will, go ahead and go to your places for prayer this morning. Because if you're in need of a blessing today, if you're in need of a prayer today, we have leaders who are going to surround us. As they're moving to those places, um, 
Casey went out of town Friday and Saturday, so I had the boys alone for 36 hours. For every single parent in this house, my respect for you goes up when Casey leaves and I'm in control. We had a prayer time Friday night, and we often pray as a family. But there are just sometimes in our time, in our moments of prayer, where the Holy Spirit is just hot. Friday night, Casey was gone. I was sitting with the boys, and uh, we were talking about things we needed to pray, and we're trying to teach our boys how to intercede for others in prayer, how to stand in a gap, how to lay others before God in faith that God can move in their lives. And that Friday night, as I was sitting there in the room with my boys, they're laying on a pallet, and I was assigning certain things that all of us could pray over. And they both, when I started mentioning names, they wanted to pray for them. Now, I can tell you stories of how crazy my boys can be and how rebellious they can be sometimes. And then there are sometimes these moments that are so sweet. So sometimes these are the moments you hear, all right? They had these prayers that were just flowing from them with truth and imagery that I don't even know if it's stuff Casey and I taught. It's God just moving in their lives. And as we were sitting there, they were the ones who wanted to pray over Tamari Friday night. They wanted to pray for Lisa Haley, who's in the trauma unit at the Met. And there were other people that they were aware of who were broken, either in their bodies or in their spirit, that they wanted to pray for. And as they began to intercede, here's what flowed from them. They said, God, sometimes it seems like Satan jumps on our back and we can't shake him off. And he's on our back and when he's there, it's like he is spreading sin and poison all over our bodies. And at that point, I'm I'm, I'm just opening my eyes in prayer. I'm like, where is this depth coming from? Like, God, it's like Satan's on our back. Have you ever had someone jump on your back, even a kid jump on your back, and you can't shake them, you know? <laughs> like in God, Satan's on Tamari's back right now. Satan's on Lisa's back right now. Satan's on the lives of some broken people in our church right now. But God, we know that you jumped on Satan's back. And just when he thought he was going to win, you're the one who jumped on his back and you defeated him. And will you defeat him again? And if there's anyone here today that you feel like the powers of evil are on your back and you cannot shake it, will you find someone standing around this morning that can pray blessings of God over you? Can we bow our heads and close our eyes? If you will, will you just lift your hands where you are? Just lift them on your lap. Got my prayer this morning from my office was that I would not be spectacular but faithful. My prayer this morning uh, for our church is that you would place Jesus in front of us in a way that's so appealing and inviting that there's no way we could say no to him this week. God, if there are any words that flowed from me that don't honor your heart, your mission, your character, your nature. May those words fall to the ground and not be remembered and be trampled by you. But if I spoke this morning words that are true and that reflect your nature and character, may those words sink deep into hearts and establish roots and bear great fruit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand as people who are desperate for the Lord. Let's sing these songs and feel free to find a place for prayer this morning.